are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20. Nehemiah inspects Jerusalem's walls. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, And what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, You have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Thanks again, Jeff. Well, when I think of tough projects, I'm immediately brought back to what we do when we are young and students maybe and trying to scrape together a few dollars where you're not really qualified to do anything. And so that means you're qualified to do just about anything that might come along. I thought through some of the things I've done in those years of my life, and I bet my list sounds about as bizarre and varied as many of yours. I've bailed hay, worked restaurants, and cut grass. I've worked in a library, taught piano lessons, and dug potatoes. I've hung Christmas lights, fixed sprinklers, and sold coffee mugs at about every high school in Los Angeles in Spanish. I've worked as a summer babysitter, a fish hauler, and a Tupperware lady. (laughs) Yet a Tupperware man just doesn't have the same ring to it. So I think I was the only 25-year-old male in the country who was selling Tupperware. (laughs) It was a low point in my life. (laughs) But lots of fun memories now. But as you know, those years from your own life, boy, lots of hard work in that season. Today in Nehemiah chapter 2, I'm excited to open these pages with you. There is some hard work and a tough project that gets underway. Our message series here the first couple months of the year has been in Ezra and Nehemiah, two books that are all about hard work, building, construction. And it's tough work rebuilding the temple in Ezra and now the city walls in Nehemiah that is our focus What we have said, though, in these early weeks of the year, though, is that what is also being rebuilt is the spiritual life of the people. 
their relationship with God looked a lot in this part of the Bible like a broken down building. So yeah, they'd rebuilt the temple under Ezra, but it wasn't easy. It had taken a while and, and they kind of ran out of steam. Rebuilding was tough work and eventually it became easier to just kind of live with the rubble around them. Um, they got used to living in the ruins. But that wasn't God's vision for his people. That's not why he had brought them back to the land and that's not what he'd called them to. In the same way, we're using this building picture as a metaphor to say that we can be surrounded by rubble and ruins in our own lives. And maybe you've been living in such a broken condition for so long that you finally want to clear it out and clean it up. And maybe you're here because you're trying to figure this out and find God. Or for others of us, maybe you recognize this morning that somewhere you lost track of where you were going. That God was there maybe a few chapters ago, the temple was rebuilt, but then you kind of lost your fervor and things became good enough and you settled into a spiritual rut. For yet others of us, you might feel like you're on relatively good terms with God, but that's the paradigm in which you understand it. You're trying to do what's right, but you're never quite sure if you're doing enough. There's still some construction zones in your life that you're fully aware of, and you're often, maybe you find yourself disappointed in the progress that you're making, and the measuring rod of your spiritual health leaves you uncertain. Here's what today is about in Nehemiah chapter 2. Today is about reclaiming the right vision for what God is rebuilding. And I trust that the Lord this morning, as he promises us and assures us, he will meet us in his word. He wrote this book and he moved in these historic events to tell us about himself. To tell you that he is the great rebuilder of broken down lives. And in this part of the Bible, he's using a man named Nehemiah to tell us that. I don't know if you've read any of Nehemiah before. It's kind of an obscure book, a part of the Bible that maybe we don't get to as often. But one of the things that I love about Nehemiah is the lessons here in leadership. If you want to be a leader, then study Nehemiah. But now I realize as soon as I say that, at least half of us in this room have discredited ourselves from that really applying to us. Because you've thought something like, well, I'm not a leader. I'm not the one in charge. That's not me. To which I would invite you to check your definition of leadership. What is a leader? It's simply somebody who exercises influence over other people. A leader is an influencer. So you can be a leader at work in virtually any position in the hierarchy. You can be a leader as a kid on your sports team, even if you don't wear the captain's badge. You can be a leader as a student at school and help set the tone in your classroom. You can be a leader on a serving team here at church, many of you are, or in a Y group that meets in your home. You can be a leader in retirement. Isn't that right? Jim, a leader here at the YMCA among our active older adults. As you invest in the relationships around you. Sorry to pick on you, Jim. I looked at you first. <laughs> Can you be a leader as a stay-at-home mom? 
Think that's leadership? Of course it is. One of the most important places of leadership is in parenting. Today we're going to gather up a number of leadership lessons from Nehemiah. And let me just put it to you this way. I've got seven to share with us. We're going to clip right along. But we're even leaving some out of this text by the wayside because we simply don't have time. I've identified seven for us that we'll uncover, and I've marked each one with a word that begins with R. And so if you are a note taker, you want to remember any of these, that'll kind of give us a map through. There's a place in the bulletin for notes. If you want to jot anything down, feel free. But here's one quick spoiler before we begin. Number seven on the list is by far the most important. Number seven. So we're going to work through to that point, and then you will see that We're finding the foundation in number seven on which all the others are built. You don't get one through six without seven. And you're going to see that unfold in the text. So here's our first word. You ready? The first word starting with R. It is the word rest. Verse 11. Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days. It's a very concise little statement But let's not miss all the preparation that went into it. Megan looked at chapter 1 with us in Nehemiah where he finds out that the city walls are in ruins. And in that part of the story, he is way over in Persia serving in the king's court and the report from Jerusalem comes in and it breaks his heart. He spent months then in prayer and fasting and he finally seeks the king's favor to travel to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall. But then that trip was no easy thing either. Megan reminded us this is 900 miles. It would have taken him four months to get there. So don't underestimate it when he says, I went to Jerusalem. This moment has been building for a long time. Nehemiah has waited for it and planned for it. And he finally arrives to rebuild. And then what happens? He rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work. No, he rested for three days. All of the action that will happen happens after resting for three days. What do we learn here? We learn that a leader operates out of a place of rest. For us in our fast-paced, overscheduled American culture, this is a major challenge for many of us in the room this morning. Not all of us, some of you are in a different season of life, but there are a lot of us here who run hard seven days a week with very little rest. Rest can mean getting enough sleep at night, and rest can also mean the biblical principle of Sabbath, that we work for six days, whether that's on the job or at home, six days for all the stuff there is to get done. But the seventh day, whether it's Sunday or another day of the week, that day is for rest, physically and spiritually. Remember the Sabbath, it says in the Ten Commandments, and keep it holy. Nehemiah was a man of action, and you're going to see this man of action on the move in the story, but he knew that he needed to rest before tackling the project in front of him, so that's where he started. The next word, number two, resolve. Resolve. Let me take a run at it and finish that sentence. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, verse 12, I set out during the night with a few others. 
I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. That is a description of resolve. There is this anchor in Nehemiah's life that is the basis for everything he does. And that anchor is what God put in his heart to do. I recently went to see the movie 1917 with a friend here from church. It's the World War I story of two British soldiers who received seemingly impossible orders. Here is their task. They have to carry a message across enemy lines to an isolated British regiment. And they have to reach them before they walk into a trap where all 1,600 men would be lost. It's a breathtaking story. It is not for the faint of heart or stomach, but a breathtaking story where the resolve of Lance Corporal Schofield takes center stage. With complete disregard of danger and for his own life, he runs across the battlefield to deliver this message. What is the message that God has given you that he has placed in your heart? There are days that knock you off your feet, aren't there? I know what those days feel like. I'm sure you do too. There are days that just knock you off your feet. And there have been times in my life where it is all I can do to run to Acts 20.24, a passage that God gave me when I was about 20 years old. And I run to it, and I read it, and I am reminded of what God put on my heart to do. So what is your resolve? What has God put on your heart? The third word is the word research. Research. We have this detailed report in the text about the night reconnaissance mission that Nehemiah takes. He goes out to survey the broken walls by cover of darkness, most likely on a mule. All right. Fun fact, pop quiz. Why a mule? Any ideas? If you go down in the Grand Canyon, do you take a horse? No. A mule because it is sure-footed. You have to imagine the rubble and the stone all along that terrain. And because a mule is quieter than a horse. So they go out to inspect the wall. Picture Nehemiah riding on his mule. Maybe under the moonlight. It's the middle of the night. And we have a number of landmarks that are listed. And that helps us recreate the route, and I put up a simple map for us to see this. They went out the valley gates on the west side, on the left side of the map, and then south down to the dung gate, which immediately caused a lot of snickering at my house this week. (laughs) We read ahead. We got stuck on that part. But it's a fitting name because the dung gate is how you got out to the city trash dump outside of Jerusalem, which was in the Hinnom Valley, Also a place called Gehenna, which is an important biblical name. So along he goes, along the wall. He circles around the south end of the fountain gate and then by the king's pool, which is later called the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus heals the blind man in John 9. And then things really start to get sketchy, even for a mule. So Nehemiah goes on foot and he continues on up toward the water gate. They're now on the eastern slope of Jerusalem, where it gets very steep down into the Kidron Valley below. It also used to have terraced housing on that eastern steep slope before it was destroyed. And so you can imagine 
all the mess of stones and debris that would have littered the mountainside there. In fact, in the 1960s, there's an archaeologist named Dr. Kathleen Kenyon who uncovered these ruins outside the old city wall, and in certain places, it is 15 feet thick of rubble. For Nehemiah's part, he got this far and he had seen enough, so he circled back to the valley gate. Now, what we should see here is how diligent Nehemiah was to do his homework. He knew that he couldn't show up, right? This is wise leadership. He couldn't show up and declare plans to rebuild the city walls without ever having seen it himself. They'd have told him, you haven't seen it. It's impossible. Have you seen those 15 feet of stones that are lying around? They would have told him it's not feasible. They would have said, you know, we just don't have the resources right now to tackle this kind of project. So he did the necessary work, and he took firsthand account, as any good leader will do. The fourth word in the story. Number four is restraint. We already came across this when he said in verse 12, I had not told anyone. And now again, after the midnight ride, he says in verse 16, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing. A leader knows that not everything needs to be said and not everything needs to be said right now. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And Nehemiah will speak very soon. He's going to speak boldly and persuasively, but he starts with silence. My sister gave me a book for Christmas that's titled The Listening Life. I'm still trying to figure out what she was trying to say to me with that Christmas gift. It's called The Listening Life. There's a great one-liner I want to share with you this morning. The author says, listening and silence are not necessarily the same thing. But silence is a really good start. Have you ever caught yourself about to say something and then you realized it didn't need to be said? Even if you were right? Isn't that a wonderful realization? When you get to see how the Holy Spirit is teaching you? It's an election year this year and so we will have ample opportunity to think about the virtues of restraint and discretion. You will not find them on your TV or in your newsfeed, but you can impress them upon your heart and model a different way. The fifth word, number five this morning, is the word recognition. Recognition. In verse 17, it's now time for Nehemiah to speak and address the city officials. And so he says to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. But the fact of the matter is, they had not seen the trouble that they were in. They had stopped seeing the problem long ago and in fact grown accustomed to disgrace. They'd been living in shambles and they got used to it, which to me sounds a lot like my kids' bedrooms. You can come over and it's like an immersive experience in the second law of thermodynamics. That's the one about chaos, 
But in the story, Nehemiah sees what nobody else is seeing. And that's a leadership lesson, isn't it? A leader sees what other people miss. Other people will walk on by, or they rule it out, or they accept it as a given. But a leader sees a situation with new eyes. Nehemiah sees with what I've heard called before something like prophetic insight. And that is seeing the current state of things for what it truly was, in this case, trouble and disgrace, and seeing beyond it to what God had said he would do. Do you have eyes to recognize the things of God? God will train your vision. He really will. Ephesians 1.18 says, May he open the eyes of your heart that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That brings us to word number six. Number six is resilience. Resilience. No sooner do they start rebuilding when this trio of opposition, the three stooges maybe we call them here, they are right on their heels. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. If you were to look at a map to see where these guys are from, you would see that they had Judah surrounded. And these other nations, they wanted to keep Judah, Jerusalem, small and defenseless. What's important for us to see is that as soon as the rebuilding began, as soon as the good work begins, along came opposition. And if you are seeking God's work in your life, then you can expect opposition. A leader is not surprised by opposition. In fact, if your routine is kind of this ho-hum walk in the park, then you might begin to wonder if what you're doing is really that consequential. The Scottish preacher Alistair Begg says, are you in this world to do something? Or are you in this world just for something to do? When men and women, and I see students with us this morning, when young people catch a vision for what God has called them to do, then you can bet that opposition will rise up to resist it. The Bible says that you and I are in a spiritual battle and the good work of God in your life will be opposed. But in all these things, Paul says in Romans, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that takes us to the final word this morning, the most important part of this whole passage, word number seven, recipient of grace. Recipient of grace. Nehemiah is ready for opposition, and he speaks truth right back at it, doesn't he? In verse 20, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Nehemiah knows where success comes from, that it is not from him, it is not some leadership prowess that he has been given, but his success will come from the God of heaven. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, he who called you is faithful and he will do it. Rebuilding is God's business. That is at the heart of the whole book of Nehemiah. If anything is going to get rebuilt, then it is God who will do it. 
Nehemiah said back in verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God. Isn't that a beautiful line? The gracious hand of my God. Do you know what grace means? We sing about it, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Do you know what it means? Grace means it's a gift. It's not earned or bought or bartered for. Rebuilding is a gift. When God puts your life back together, that is sheer gift. When he builds you up into the image of his son, that is his gift to you. And here's the most important lesson of this whole passage, perhaps of the whole Bible. God rebuilds us by his grace. We respond by how we live. That is the true and proper order of things. The gracious hand of God comes first, and then anything we do is simply response to receiving that gift. But we recognize, we have to call out that we get it so easily backwards. If you're not careful, your default theology might sound something like this. I will rebuild myself by being a good person, and God will hopefully respond by letting me in. And I'm amazed at how pervasive this thought is even in the church. You could be going to church for years and you could get this completely backwards. And getting it backwards means that we do not understand the gospel. We don't understand why Jesus came and what he did for us on the cross. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God rebuilds us by his grace. It is a gift. And you just have to say yes to that gift and receive it. That you would believe that Jesus died for all of your sins and place your trust in Him as Savior and Lord. There is no actual rebuilding that takes place if that doesn't happen. But once it does, then the good work begins. And you and I are then invited into a life of following after Jesus and learning to be more like Him. The pursuit of holiness it is all about response. A life of worship. A life that says, Lord Jesus, thank you for rebuilding my broken down life. And now I want to cooperate with what your Holy Spirit is doing and do what is good and right. One of my favorite lines in the 23rd Psalm, Esther and I were just visiting a woman who is sick and we were able to read these words over her bedside. The 23rd Psalm says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He is the great rebuilder. That's what I want you to hear this morning. He is the great rebuilder, and you and I are the recipients of grace. And then all that follows is a joyful response to his good work that is being established in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you do meet us in your word. And where things are out of order, you put them back in place. 
We thank you, Lord, that we can glean all these leadership lessons and life lessons from Nehemiah. But above them all, far beyond all these things, Lord, stands the truth of your grace. The gift that you came to give to us. And Lord, if any of us have had this backwards or upside down, or we have thought we have to get our own lives rebuilt, we just repent of that this morning and and we come empty-handed before your throne. It's ready to fully receive what you have to give. Lord, you see for each one of us the areas of our life that are broken or rubble-filled or in ruins. And we ask, Lord, that you and your rebuilding, healing power would sweep into our lives and put things in order. Lord Jesus, all we can do is in response just say we love you. And we worship you. Praying by the mighty, powerful name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.